All of us are on a journey of becoming, a complicated journey in pursuit of truth and deeper knowledge of the divine. Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing and that it can be a painful and difficult journey and far too often we are not given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson and I too am on a journey of becoming. I am dedicated to inviting you into my journey and creating a space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. I want to take an honest look at the issues and questions plaguing the Christian church today. I want to genuinely seek out what it means to live like Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our unfolding and expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. I have come to know that doubt is not the enemy of faith but it is perhaps one of its greatest allies. I have learned that the Christian faith is more about wisdom and love than it is about correct doctrine or belief. And I believe that we are being invited to continually seek out both wisdom and love, renewing our minds, expanding our hearts, and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining me on that journey. All right. Well, welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I'm your host, Josh Patterson. And with me today is actually a returning guest. If you go way back in the archives, you can find an episode uh, with them in the past. I don't know for sure what number it is, but I believe in you listeners that you can go and find it for the, you know, the expert uh, I don't know, searchers that you can <laughs> that you guys are. But with me today is Dr. Eric Seibert. Eric, how's it going? Great. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thank you so much for uh, for returning to the podcast. I'm glad that I didn't scare you away the first time you hung out. <laughs> That's always positive in my book. And uh, listeners, just for a little background information, if you didn't hear the first episode, um, I actually had the privilege of uh, being a student of Professor Seibert's when I was in college. And I think I said it on the, the last episode that you were on, but uh, the class that I took with you was by far one of my favorite classes I took during my time um, at college, but it was also the most difficult class I took. <laughs> yeah. But you, but you survived, you passed. I did, I did, I did pass, <laughs> which I appreciate. <laughs> yeah, but um, Eric, if you would, just for, for listeners who maybe didn't catch that episode or who aren't quite familiar with uh, yourself and your work, can you just fill us in a little bit about um, who you are and what kind of things you find yourself doing. Sure. I am a professor of Old Testament at Messiah University. Um, so I teach a lot of um, the basic Bible class here that we have. It's called Encountering the Bible. Uh, Old Testament is my particular area of interest and specialty. And a lot of my uh, research and scholarship has sort of circled around issues of violence in the Old Testament and particularly divine violence. So I've written some things uh, thinking, trying to think through how do we sort of make sense of God's behavior in the Old Testament, um, particularly in light of other Old Testament texts where God appears to be very behaving very differently, graciously, compassionately, and certainly in light of the New Testament, we see uh, the God revealed in Jesus, uh, who looks somewhat different from some of these violent Old Testament texts. So that's been a lot of my, taking a lot of my thinking and, and, and time and writing um, in years past. 
Awesome. Yeah. And uh, listeners, if you're particularly interested in some of the divide violence stuff, the, the episode that uh, actually happened in the past um, was about just that. <laughs> so go back in the archives and find it. It's there. Um, yeah, I think that'll be helpful to you guys. Uh, but I think a question that I've been asking a little bit more recently, I'm not sure if I asked you this when you were on previously, so forgive me if I have, uh, but the show is called Rethinking Faith. And so I've found it particularly interesting to ask guests what they feel is maybe the most important aspect of their faith that they had to rethink. And so I'm going to pose that question to you as well. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I have to think about that for just a moment. Um, probably one of the biggest things I've had to rethink is just how much I um, would understand God to be, um, how, how I would understand God to be engaging the world. Um, I would have previously thought to be God to be an interventionist um, in a much more directive way um, than I now would would envision God. I certainly think God is persuasive and God is loving and God um, is communicative, um, relational and all those kinds of things. But I, I don't see God um, as, as a divine being um, who is particularly um, intervening, let's say, to stop evil or to stop tragedy or to stop suffering um, from happening. So we were talking a little bit before we, we got on here. I, I really appreciate some of the work of Tom Ord and how he thinks through that. And so again, I, I think my views of, of God's relation to um, humanity in terms of how God operates has really, it's really been a big shift in my, in my thinking. Hmm. Yeah, right on. I think listeners would be excited to hear that because uh, Tom, as I told you, is a friend of the podcast and just a really genuinely great human being. <laughs> so shout agreed. out to Tom. Yeah, I know, agreed. I know Tom listens to the show. So shout out to you, Tom. Thanks for everything. Uh, but I think, I mean, just off the, the cuff here, I think it's interesting. Um, I have talked to a couple different Old Testament scholars now who have shared some similar thoughts in regards to open and relational theology. And I personally think the Old Testament lends itself nicely to some of those things. And so I don't know. I just think it's interesting that some of these uh, Old Testament uh scholars like yourself are are finding that way of thinking helpful um and i mean yeah, I, yeah I, go ahead I mean, no sorry I, I i do think that's true i mean i think there are certainly a number of places where um open theology is um supported by the way the verses are are described i mean or god's behavior is described in those verses uh, for me, I mean, this was many years ago. I I can remember you know seeing things like you know the the near sacrifice of Abraham or near sacrifice of Isaac, excuse me, where you know after this event, you know, where Isaac's almost sacrificed, you know, you get the angel of the Lord who is you know sort of a stand-in for God, saying you know now I know, which suggests that something has been learned in the process. Or other places, you know, like in Jeremiah, where God is surprised by Israel's actions, things which again suggest that the future is open, that God doesn't sort of know all those things in advance. Those were things that began to get me thinking along those lines. And and, and I only later sort of found out, oh, there's actually a, a name for this uh, kind of uh, thought, which I which was really encouraging to me that other, others had thought about this as well. And so it was kind of a long journey since then. But yeah, I do. I think you're right. I think the Old Testament is it's helpful in that regard. Yeah, it's and I mean, it's definitely I mean, just that that excuse me, line of thinking has been super helpful uh, 
just for myself. And I mean, we don't have to belabor that too much. I, you know, we didn't, didn't try to set up this conversation just to discuss open and relational theology, although I could do that all night. Um, but you do have actually a, a new book out, uh, which is cool. It's called Enjoying the Old Testament, A Creative Guide to Encountering Scripture, which, by the way, I feel like you, like whoever designed the cover uh, did a really nice job. Like this is a, a snazzy looking book. <laughs> I was very pleased with it. Yes. Yeah. Shout out to whoever designed that for, uh, for IVP. Um, but I specifically wanted to interview you about this book because um, for me, especially more recently in my journey, engaging the Bible in general has been a difficult task. Um, but in, in engaging the Old Testament specifically has been an even more difficult task for myself. And so um, the last time we had talked, I remember you were still in the early you know, processes of, of, of writing this book. So I was excited to see it when I came out. And I know that listeners as well uh, would kind of resonate with that kind of idea that that. Um, the engaging that would be difficult. So, I mean, enjoying the Old Testament, like what? Some of my listeners are going to see the episode title be like, what would you talking about? That's crazy. And um, also, too, if I'm honest, um, I have found that more recently, I have really enjoyed talking about the Bible more than actually reading it, <laughs> which I don't know if that's good or bad. Um <laughs> But like, I love listening to like Tim Mackey uh, over at Bible Project. Uh, he's been insanely helpful. Uh, my buddy Jace Broadhurst, Dr. Jace Broadhurst does this thing called Tuesday School, where he's basically giving like a free like seminary level, like hermeneutics class to anybody who wants to come hang out. Um, so yeah, I was, I was excited to, to see your book come out. Um, and we'll talk about some of those issues that I mentioned in a second, but I just wanted to ask you from like a personal perspective, when was it that you fell in love with the Old Testament? And like, why? <laughs> not, in a, not why in a bad way, but like, what, what was it about this, the Old Testament that, that made you fall in love? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I mean, I, growing up, I grew up in a Christian home um, and I did spend you know, time in scripture, but I would have spent the majority of my time in the New Testament. I wouldn't have done a whole lot with the Old Testament. Um, but I do remember when I came to Maasai, then Maasai College, now Maasai University, um, it was my, I believe it was my, my um, either my first or second year, I took a class titled Old Testament Literature. And for me, that the professor of that class was Dr. Terry Brenzinger, and he just, he made the Old Testament come alive. And I, I began to see like how relevant it was to um, my life, to, you know, my faith. Um, and that was exciting because here was you know, this huge part of the Bible that I, I mean, I'm sure I had never read through the, the whole Old Testament before, you know, at that at that point. And so to to realize there's, that there were all these things waiting for me to discover, um, that was really exciting. And so I just I kind of got hooked, and I just kept taking more and more classes. I kind of became an Old Testament junkie, and I just I couldn't get enough of it. So that that class was really the, the the crystallizing moment for me when I really began to enjoy and ultimately love the Old Testament. Yeah, that, that's awesome. And it, it, I mean, it reminds me too, just of the, because you said that like um, your professor really helped make the Old Testament come alive. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I've enjoyed too. When I said earlier that I've found that I enjoy talking about the Bible more than actually reading it. 
it's because I like listening to people who can do that. And then I get frustrated because then I'm like, wow, this Old Testament is so awesome. And now I'm going to sit down and try to read it. And then I'm like, wait a minute, this is the same thing that these people were just talking about. They made it so much better. <laughs> so like that was, that's, uh, that's been a, a, a challenge for me um, for sure. But I guess we can, we can go there and, and talk about that because you do acknowledge it um, in your book, which I, I thought was just super wise um, to acknowledge that people do struggle engaging the Old Testament for a variety of reasons. Um, like me personally, the, the two, well, yeah, I guess the two or three major ones for me would be the divine violence stuff, which we've talked about before. Um, I think like there are just some morally reprehensible things that happen in the Old Testament. <laughs> And also there are parts of it that are just like, make me want to cross my eyes and go to sleep. <laughs> so like what, um, do, like, do those, does that resonate with you at all? Have you found similar things in your experience? Yes. I mean, I think those are both two of the biggest reasons why people really struggle with the Old Testament. I mean, you're right, certainly the, the divine violence and just other passages that are really morally problematic. I think a lot of people just find it difficult to get around that. Um, so, so in a sense, I mean, and since I said I've written some on that already, one of my students calls, you know, this particular book, my, my happy Old Testament book, um, is how she referred to it. Um, but yeah, that those problematic passages are one thing, but do you think a lot of people just find it boring? I mean, to be quite frank, yeah, Genesis may be interesting and Exodus is okay for a while until you get to like the tabernacle details. But by Leviticus, I mean, it's just like it's all over and people kind of give up at that point and don't often get much further beyond that. Um, so people find it boring. They find it irrelevant. I mean, they don't enjoy, you know, genealogies or census lists or purity laws. These things just don't tend to get folks real excited. And, and there are, you know, significant chunks of that. Um, in the Old Testament. So that's, it's tough, I think, for, for readers just to be, and they're really being honest, they, they feel like they're supposed to get something out of the Old Testament. Their churches tell them they're supposed to get into the Word and read this, and then they try, and they make a good effort, but they, they bump up against some of these things. They're just not quite sure what to do with them, and, and ultimately, they sometimes, unfortunately, just, just give up because it's just not engaging. Yeah, and I mean, like, to be fair, I, I feel like I've found myself <laughs> in that category as someone who has given up on more than more than one occasion, um, you know, for for a variety of reasons. But then again, like I was saying, I, I find people uh, like yourself or like Tim Mackey or my buddy Jace, who just have a real knack and ability to make this book come alive. And then I'm like, drawn right back into it um yeah i mean i think that's yeah at least in my experience i feel like that's been common as well like when i was a youth pastor engaging with students um i mean not to the same level that you do as a as a college professor but like they were not interested in the old testament like ever <laughs> so like i think it, it really has been um yeah, like it, it, it can cause issues for people. But like, have you like in your studies yourself as someone who's been like engaging and and looking at the Old Testament for a number of years now, like have you personally ever had times when 
you had some similar issues with the Old Testament? Like, was it ever problematic for you or, or boring or anything like that? Oh, sure. I mean, I think that's, again, I think anyone who's honest will would, would say that there are certainly seasons, I think, for all of us where we're, you know, more engaged with the text than others. And there, there can be a whole host of reasons why that may happen. It just may be stuff that's going on in your life. You might feel especially busy. Um, or you might be trying to make your way through the Old Testament and you just hit some rough patches that are that are more difficult to to perhaps enjoy than others. I, I guess for me, part of what part of it, the, the one that and this is a, a, an, an analogy I use in the in the book, I I am a I love to, to hunt for beach glass. Um, some people may not know what that is. Beach glass or sea glass is this glass that's out in like Great Lakes or oceans. It gets kind of tumbled back in. You can pick it up along the along the shoreline. Which is really a bad hobby to have, uh, given where I live, since I'm kind of in a landlocked South Central Pennsylvania. But when I can get out to those places, um, I love looking for beach glass, and I, you can find, you know, white and green and brown. Um, sometimes, you know, even cobalt blue or you know, the holy grails like the red. To find red is really tough. And there are some days when I hunt for beach glass, and I just, you know, I I come back with you know, pockets just filled with the stuff, which is really exciting. And there are other days because maybe the water's high, um, and it's hard to get to the spots where it's good, and you, you don't come back with a lot. But it's the fact that you know that it's there and that you know you can come back another day and that even if you didn't find it today, maybe the next day you'll find it. Um, it's, that, it's that knowledge that there are rich treasures waiting to be discovered that kind of keeps drawing me back. So, yeah, if I have some bad days, I, I, I say, yeah, that's, that's okay. And I'll, I'll try again the next day and, I, I, and, and maybe have a better experience than I did today. So that, that kind of keeps pulling me back in again. Yeah, that's a great analogy. My my wife and I too like uh, looking for for sea glass. When um, every year we go on vacation into the northern neck of Virginia um, to like a little town called Montrose, which is like in the middle of nowhere. It's like a little fishing town, and her family has been doing that as a tradition for many, many, many years. And after we started dating, I was in, you know invited into that. Um, we even ended up getting married in Montrose, and so looking for sea glass there. Um, is like a, yeah, we love, we love that too. So that, that analogy works for me just on a personal level, because I'm like, yeah, I agree. That is a fun thing. Oh, go away. FaceTime. Forgive me. My uh, <laughs> brother tried to FaceTime me. Not appropriate. Um, yeah. So uh, in re regards to this though, so say we have listeners right now, they're listening, obviously, because they're listeners. And they're like resonating, like, yeah, I agree. I've had some issues with the Old Testament. And they're kind of like, but my whole thing is I don't even want to bother with it. Like, I'm not interested in, in this. So why, like, what would you say to somebody like that? Why do you think it's worth um, even bothering with the Old Testament? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, and if it was, I was sitting down across to them, I would probably want to First of all, just listen a little bit and ask them, you know, why why is it that they don't want to bother with the Old Testament? And I'd want to hear what the reason would be. I mean, maybe it is specifically they just can't get past, you know, all of God's apparent violence in the Old Testament. And then we could talk about that as a particular issue and maybe kind of work at that. Or it might be that they just, you know, find it boring or irrelevant. Or, or it could be that, you know, maybe they're, you know, a member of the LGBTQ community and they've been, you know, harmed by the Old Testament and they for that reason, don't want to read. So I, I'd want to listen carefully first to see why they're not interested in it, and then maybe try to respond that way. Just more like generally, I mean, I would, I could make a case for why I think it's valuable. Like I think there are these fantastic stories that are endlessly fascinating, 
that are relevant to us um, today. So I could talk about that. I, I think there are examples of people who sort of demonstrate a really gutsy faith um, that I find inspiring, whether it's the you know, Hebrew midwives who won't kill these, you know, Hebrew babies, um, even though the king commands them to, or whether it's someone like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who are going to, you know, do what's right, even if it means a one-way trip into the fiery furnace. So I, I find those th kinds of things inspiring. Um, it emphasizes social justice, which I think is extremely important for Christian faith. Um, there are stories that give us alternatives to violence. There are actually some nonviolent solutions to conflict. So I, I tend to think those are really interesting to look at. So for those in a whole host of reasons, there's there's so much good in the Old Testament that it's worth kind of trying to work through the difficulties to, to be sure you get to some of those things. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I, one of the, one of the things for me that um, I've kind of been realizing recently or, or coming into contact with recently in the New Testament, or rather the Old Testament, that's kind of um, like helped give me some uh, reason for bothering with the Old Testament as well is just um, seeing how the New Testament authors engage with the Old Testament and like all the crazy stuff that they do with it, where they're like taking the text and then like, for lack of a better term, kind of changing the meaning or like they're like theologizing with these these Old Testament texts that are like they're clearly grabbing from this deep and rich tradition. And then they're trying to like bring it forth um, into where they're at now and then like use it to like theologize about their situation. I don't know if that's a, a good way to say it or not, but like that interaction and interplay between the New Testament authors and the Old Testament authors, especially like Jesus and his interaction and some of the fascinating and funky stuff he does with the old testament um also is like been recently for me like another reason to like well maybe i should give this old testament stuff another chance i mean you're certainly right i mean the new testament writers are well versed in these 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 scriptures and they they use they use them they draw upon them they allude to them sometimes quote directly from them so that's certainly it's certainly a, a big part of their own sort of worldview and their thought thoughts world as well. I mean, it is interesting, the, you know, interpretive methods that would have been used in the first century, um, if, you know, students would do that today on an exegetical paper, we'd probably get a bad grade because we don't tend to interpret the same way. But in that context, it, you know, it was a valid way to interpret the text. Um, but it, yeah, it does look very different from how we tend to read, read those Old Testament texts today. Yeah, we uh, recently, I was, I was having a conversation, um, again, with my buddy, Jace, and we were, I was asking him like what he thought, like, are we allowed to do with the Bible, what the apostles did in the new Testament? Like, is, are we allowed to do that today? Um, he was like, yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. I guess, I guess it's, I'm sure that's, that's worth arguing about, uh, or something, but I think that's, that's super interesting. Like what, Hmm. And I mean, I think people definitely do that, but like, what would it look like to engage scripture in the same way where we, yeah, like, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know if you have thoughts on that or that's a whole nother topic though. <laughs> like, I guess, may I just say quickly, I think there's the beauty of interpretation is that there are many different methods and throughout, throughout the history of Christian interpretation and even before that, I mean, there's, there's just a great diversity. And so it's, I think it's a, it could be a fun exercise and someone might want to do this where you take a passage and you kind of run, you look at it through the ages, you know, how did the early church interpret this? How did, you know, 
people in the Middle Ages, medieval church interpreted it, what it looked like in the Reformation, you know, what happened sort of post-Enlightenment, how do maybe some of the most you know, critical scholars today view it. And you'd see a variety of different ways people can approach these texts. And I think you can see different things in the text when you approach it from different angles. So I think what's most important probably is just to be upfront and explicit about the kind of method that you're using. And then you say, I'm using this particular method to read the text and it can generate certain kinds of ideas. And if I use a different method, it would you know, have some other, um, some other things that might come out of that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, hmm. I, like, I like how you, you speak about that because there's, I mean, there's definitely like, I mean, at least to me, I think it's axiomatic that like everybody has their own, hermeneutic or approach to interpreting scripture right like everybody is interpreting in some way um but then to be able to be honest about like here's the method that i'm using and so that's why i look at it this way but then also remaining open to say okay you're interpreting it like what what is your you know what lens are you using what hermeneutic approach are you using and then that can i guess that can really help bring understanding in conversation, if like, say, you and I were to interpret a, a passage differently, um, and then we said, oh, well, I'm using like this method versus this method, and be like, oh, okay, of course, that makes sense. And then that that can lend itself to like better conversation rather than just like, no, you're wrong, and I'm right, or, you know, whatever. So I, I like how the emphasis you put on on that, I think is nice. Yeah, I do think yeah. that's, I, I think it's helpful to be, to be clear about that, because I think often we tend to think that our interpretation is just is just the right one i guess because it's our interpretation but it is helpful to be transparent about how we arrive at that and what our assumptions are and what methods we're using yeah yeah for sure and i um one thing that that came to mind uh for me in that with like that chapter you know you, where you talk about um why should we we bother with the old testament um is uh Andy Stanley, he kind of wrote a book, I guess it was a couple years ago now, but um, called, um, what was it? Uh, I forget. Um, I don't even remember the name of his book, but he wrote a book like about the, uh, the Bible. And basically he tried to make this point that like we should unhitch is the language. He is the Old Testament from the New Testament. And he had some reasons for that. And he caught a lot of flack for that. Um, irresistible that's the book are you familiar with that that work by any chance i i have not read that i i i'm aware that i when you said andy stanley that in that book it kind of came back to my mind i know there's some conversation around that yeah but i haven't read the book okay yeah because i i think i think part of like what he was trying to do is is say like hey maybe we can introduce the old Testament a little bit later after people have engaged with the new Testament first or like something like that. Like, I think he was trying to provide some kind of um, approach that would lend itself better to like new believers or something like that. People engaging scripture for the first time and saying like, maybe starting at Genesis isn't the best idea. (laughs) I think that's what he was doing, but I don't know. I, I don't think he was trying to throw out the old Testament completely. And I know people accused him of being a, marcionite or whatever um i think rather unfairly but yeah i was i was just interested if you had opinion on that or not but it, um yeah we can move on yeah to that. Not, <laughs> having not read the book i guess i would just say I, I i do worry a little bit sometimes when people um 
argue that the only reason really, or they don't, they wouldn't say quite this way. They would, they would argue the reason for reading the Old Testament is because it helps you make sense of the New Testament, as though the, the Old Testament is only good as kind of a preface or a preamble for like the main event, which is the New Testament. So I, I find that logic a little troubling. So I do think you kind of want to take the Old Testament in its own right. I mean, certainly when you can make connect testaments do that, but the Old Testament has, has integrity in, in and of itself. And so I, I wouldn't want to just see its value only as sort of a handmaiden to, to, to the new. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I think that's uh that's a fair critique. And I, I think too, that's something that like I've been really trying to um, come to terms with more recently as well as like, what, what does it look like for me to just kind of take the old Testament on its own terms? Um, and like how, I think it's been interesting, at least the question to ask myself, like the difference between, so currently I'm a Christian, so I'm going to read the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus, because that's, you know, I'm a Christian, that's what I do. But I think it's been interesting to kind of ask the question, okay, but like maybe how would um, somebody of like a a Jewish background who um, like doesn't quite do the whole following Jesus bit, like how might they read and understand this text or what? What would it mean, like, when the author originally wrote this text, what did they mean by it versus what does it mean today? Um, I think those are interesting distinctions to make. So, like, just trying to, um, yeah, I don't know. I think that's a that's a good critique that I haven't thought about before, but I think I think that's spot on. Hmm. Cool. Well, um, there's a, another section. Um, within the pages of your book that I found really helpful, um, not just for the Old Testament, but also I think people do this with the Bible as a whole. We tend to bring some uh, unhealthy expectations to the text that can really uh, maybe start us off on the wrong, you know, the wrong track or something like that. Um, but so like what, in regards to the Old Testament though, specifically, what do you think are some of the, the like unhealthy expectations um, that maybe we should be weary of bringing to the the Old Testament. Well, I think we probably do this with with maybe all of the Bible, but certainly with the Old Testament, I think there's sometimes an assumption that it should be easily understandable. That I should be able just to open it, read it, and understand it. Um, that it should maybe also be you know equally enjoyable. That somehow we should find it all interesting, every part of it, because it's you know the Bible. Or that it's immediately applicable. That like once I open it up and read it, I'll I'll understand it. I'll have fun understanding it, and I'll know exactly what to do with it. Um, and that you know, in my five or ten minute or whatever it may be, you know, someone's having some quiet time or devotional time, that they'll leave that uh, experience sort of exhilarated and with this you know specific word from God for them for that day. And I just think those are those are unrealistic expectations. I mean, I do think the Old Testament is understandable. I do think it is enjoyable, and I do think it's applicable. But those things don't always happen all the time and certainly not necessarily in that order. So we have to kind of come in with again, realistic expectations that, you know, today might not be the best day with the text, or maybe today will be a day where, where I'll see something that I hadn't expected to see. Um, but just to be patient with ourselves, to be patient with the, pro- with the pro- process that we're going through and to realize that um, there are some difficult things to work through. This is a, a document that was, you know, a series of documents, texts that were written over a couple thousand years ago in a culture that's different from ours with a worldview that we don't always share. And so there's going to be some some translation needed from 
then to now as we try to work through these texts. And I think if we have that mindset and even think about it like kind of like the mindset you'd have when you're traveling to a foreign country. You know, you kind of go in with humility, you go with respect, you, you know you're gonna maybe make some mistakes along the way. So you're just gonna be patient and kind of enjoy the process. That's a much better way to enter than kind of going in with this high expectation of getting specific things out of it in maybe a relatively short amount of time. Yeah, that um, in my like specific upbringing, I remember the Old Testament kind of when it was talked about, it was it was like used or talked about differently than when they would um, like the pastor would use the New Testament. And so like what I mean by that is like whenever the Old Testament was invoked, it was always about like, um, you know, taking a character in scripture and then saying like, okay you're that character. This is like your moral example. So you have to be a David, you know, what are your five, you know, stones or whatever. And what are the Goliaths in your life that you have to like tear down or something like that? Like it was always applied that way. Whereas like the new Testament was, was like treated kind of different. Um, like we got like, you know, ethics or theology or something like that. But the old Testament was just about here are these moral examples and we have to follow and like go be a David or something like that. And I think perhaps even though well-intentioned um, that can be kind of misleading as well, at least. Um, yeah. As I, as I study more, it seems like that's maybe not necessarily the best approach to always take when, yeah. when coming to the old Testament. It sounds like in that case, I mean, it was sort of spiritualized in this in the example you gave of, you know, David and Goliath, you know, the five stones and five things, you know, to do that is to do, to make those kinds of moves are not, not always the most useful or or to simply say you know, here's the moral of this story i think sometimes we tend to want to reduce a story a narrative to a kind of a single point and sometimes we do that with young children to try to help them understand the problem is we we don't often move beyond the young children's stage and we keep doing the same thing over and over again and if people think well there's a single moral to the story and i've already got that moral then what's the point reading the story again like let me move on to something else and again i I said before, I think these narratives are, are endlessly fascinating, but you have to kind of look at them through a variety of different lenses. You have to do different things with them and read them from different perspectives. You know, so for example, if you're going to read a story like uh, the flood narrative, you know, try reading it from the perspective of people outside the ark rather than people who are inside the ark. Or if you're going to read the story of you know Joshua and the Battle of Jericho, as it's so called, you know, again, think about people inside the city rather than the Israelites coming in from the outside. So those again, different ways to approach the text that I think are helpful and kind of open up new possibilities. We always want to be careful. We don't just sort of maybe superficially um, spiritualize a text. Yeah, that that's really good. And it it actually reminds me too that, I mean, the the example you just gave with the, the flood narrative, um, when I took your class, I took, so I took Old Testament lit with you um, and you gave an example if I recall correctly, I think like maybe a friend of yours wrote this um, where like they took the you read a story to us and we all thought we knew what was going on. But then at the end, it was like uh, Goliath, like telling the David and Goliath story, but from Goliath's perspective. And that was one of the first looking at it that way was one of the first times when I actually started to uh, take nonviolence, like an ethic of nonviolence seriously. Um, because when I went in, into Messiah College, I did not hold to an ethic of nonviolence, not because I had ever like sat down and thought that was stupid, but it just wasn't 
what I inherited. And then that was like kind of the catalyst, the thing for me that always stuck out. And I always remembered that that kind of started to shift. And then now, like, I mean, I hold to a strong ethic of, of nonviolence. And I think for a variety of reasons, um, but yeah, that that like creative uh, reimagining um, of the Old Testament story was something that really was impactful for for me personally. So yeah, I appreciate a good that. Memory. I, I'm glad you remembered that that story. Yeah, it was written by someone else who sent it to me, and it was it is sort of interesting because you you don't quite know when the story begins who you're talking about, but then you realize it's it's Goliath's son, um, and he's looking forward. To, I think at the end of it, he's looking forward to this fishing trip with his dad the next day or something or some outing, and you know of course you know his dad's not going to come back, and so it just make you think about well who what about Goliath's family or what about the other Philistines who are killed and their families and. Um, it helps you develop compassion for victims of violence in the text, which I think is really important because if, you know, I've sort of said before, you know, we don't feel any more compassion for the death of a Philistine than we do for the death of an orc in J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. I mean, something's wrong with our reading. These are, these are people. And so, and I think what's dangerous is if you don't feel compassion for people in the biblical text who die, it's not that much of a move to feel the same way. Maybe the lack of compassion for people today, we kind of have people that we other, we say are different from us, or maybe even people who are expendable or people who need to die. And I think that move is extremely dangerous. So I do find that to be a helpful way to deal with some of those violent texts that are so troubling to maybe look at through the eyes of the victims of violence and to think about their stories and to help us maybe think about how we want to act and, and be today in the world today. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. And I think, I mean, just the, with that, I think the, the proof is in the pudding because for sure, like, exploring the old testament that way or or this specific story had a lasting impact on myself and i think it, it brought transformation um in a way that i think was was good right um so that that's really that's interesting um and i, I mean i think too like in regards to to kind of also taking the text at its word i think it's interesting as well to kind of at least more recently, I've been trying to really dig in and like see a text. Like the coolest thing I learned about the David and Goliath story more recently was like the the connection between that story and the whole like snake crusher vibe that gets carried out um, in the Old Testament, where like Goliath is almost like talked about in such a way in the Hebrew, where like Goliath is set up to look like a snake. And like he has scales and like the, the Hebrew wordplay is like obvious to people who, who know Hebrew. Um, and then like, of course, David had to, you know, cut his head off because it's the snake crusher. It's like that, that image. And so that like learning those kind of things too really helps the Old Testament come to life because then it's like, wow, like this text is not just some, you know, boring, silly, violent book, but rather like this is a highly stylized whatever it is and that the authors are are genius like this is brilliant you know and again i mean on on and on the the side where we always want to be careful it's like if you portray someone as a monster or you demonize them that's it's much easier to then justify kill, killing them and eliminating them and again you know we see that played out in <laughs> the movies we watch and the world we live in all, all the time. So again, I think it's, it's, it's helpful to, to bring that to the surface, to talk about it, be conscious of it, and, uh, and to, to again, use that sort of maybe as a, as a word of caution. Yeah, for sure. That, I mean, I guess that kind of 
gets into like the descriptive versus prescriptive kind of stuff like just because david did it does that mean we should is the bible like justifying these actions or is it more saying like hey here's what happened and like oh but look here's the consequences of that action so maybe you shouldn't do that um and i think some i mean certainly there are some passages where it's a lot easier to say like you know i think about a story like david and bathsheba and all that kind of transpires through that story with you know the murder by proxy of Uriah and, you know, the attempted cover-up and all that, you can certainly see there how, you know, one sin leads to another, you know, how sin has all these negative consequences. It's easy to use a story like that to say, you know, here are things we, sh- we, we ought not do. It's, it's harder in stories, I think, like David and Goliath and others where the text certainly seems to sanction and sometimes even celebrate acts of violence. Then, then I think we have a, as interpreters, we have a responsibility to engage in an ethical critique of those texts um, on the basis of other parts of the Bible that call us to love others and that call us to do justice and that remind us that we're creating God's image where we say, you know, these these texts are not reflecting the kinds of virtues that we want to, you know, pass on and instill in our in our congregants or in our families, um, you know, and how can we still use them in constructive ways? I don't want to throw them out, but I, you know, again, want to be careful with them not to to reinscribe some of those violent um, attitudes. Yeah, and that that also brings to mind too, just I guess this fits in within the categories of expectations is like I know people um will discuss and debate is the Bible univocal or is it multivocal? Like does it speak with you know multiple voices or just one voice? Um and I think that's interesting too in regards to expectations, because if we expect in my, now this is my opinion, but if we expect the Bible to be univocal. And then we come to it and see these different things. Like you're saying some passages where violence is like, no, we don't do that. And then other ones, it seems to be celebrated. Uh, Like that kind of throws a wrench into that whole understanding. Um, So I think that maybe within expectations for me, a healthy expectation would be to bring a multivocal, you know, expectation to scripture rather than just, you know, a univocal kind of, kind of vibe. Yeah, and I think, and to expect diversity, that would be natural. I mean, within the Old Testament itself, it's, you know, written over about 800-year time period, multiple authors, different places, they're going to have different thoughts, so you would expect to have, you know, diversity. I, I see the Old Testament as a conversation, so you have different, you know, differing opinions, and part of the, I mean, for me, part of the pleasure is sort of jumping into those conversations and kind of seeing maybe where I would come out on them, just to, I mean, to give one quick example, Think about what sometimes is called the theology of retribution. This whole idea that you know, if I if I obey God, then I'm going to be healthy, wealthy, and, and live very long. But if I disobey God, you know, I'm going to be poor and sickly and die prematurely. And that's like writ large in Deuteronomy 28. But you see it throughout the Old Testament. But then you get a book like Job, kind of pushing back against that, where this guy is saying, "Hey, I haven't done anything wrong, and I'm suffering terribly." And his and his friends keep saying, "Hey, we all went to the same school. We 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 got A's in theology 101. We know that." You know, if you're suffering, it's because you've sinned. And Job's like, no, I haven't done anything to deserve this. So there's a conversation going on within the pages of the Bible itself has been canonized. And I think that invites us to engage this, that same conversation. We think through these questions ourselves. So for me, that's an invitation that I find really helpful. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like that. And I, I remember, too, uh, learning about Job. And um, I, man, I feel bad because I don't remember the professor I had at the time. but um, he was trying to make the point 
that he so he believed the ending of job is redacted that like you know when job gets all the his stuff back basically was added later and we had a really interesting conversation in class like does that matter like does does that matter to you do you think it, it changes the story if job gets his stuff back or not um and i remember that being like a really kind of heated discussion amongst amongst the, the students in the class um and i i mean i kind of have a rebellious spirit so i sometimes i like to argue for things just to do it and so i said no that it's better if job didn't get all of his stuff back da, 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 da. um yeah i was i don't know when you were talking about job i, I was reminded of that because the yeah the, i mean the theology of of retribution is a that's major right throughout the pages of scripture all the way through even into yeah. the new testament it's a, it's a common theme that, that gets brought up over and over um and I like the word you used, conversation, um, that there's a conversation within the pages of scripture. And once I came to that like realization and understanding, it kind of helped. Um, I mean, it helped a lot, right? Because then it's like acknowledging like, okay, this, this conversation and like some of these uh, disagreements, if, if um, I'm allowed to call them that, um, they still got canonized. And that's really cool, right? That's something that we can celebrate. Um, and maybe there's an example there. What does it look like um, for us today to, to have these kind of healthy conversations? Um, and maybe there's something within those healthy conversations where we're wrestling with these texts and and coming with different perspectives and whatever that somehow there's, for lack of better term, magic in the wrestling, right? Iron sharpens iron. And that's something that maybe helps cultivate faith. I mean, so seeing yeah. that within the pages of scripture was like, oh, wow, like that's a breath of fresh air. That's really cool. No, I think that's really helpful. I, I think, again, maybe to go back to expectations, sometimes we we tend to view the Bible as though it were a repository of truth. I mean, my one colleague, um, former colleague, used to talk about it, these kind of going into these like truth McNuggets, like you just try to dip in and grab a truth McNugget out. And certainly there's truth in the Bible. I'm not saying there isn't. But I think it's dangerous that we see the whole thing simply as, you know, a, a series of propositional statements that we kind of can pick up and, you know, each one contains the same kind of truth. I think, like you say, that it's, it's our faith can be developed, it grows, it matures in part through the struggle, through the wrestling. We've got, you know, biblical examples of people who wrestle with God, whether it's, you know, Abraham or Moses or, or others. And so I think it's, it's, in a sense, it's very biblical to enter into that kind of dialogue and to do that as well, you know, certainly in community with others as we think through these things. Um, but that's a that's a valuable extra spiritual exercise for us to be part of. Yeah, that I know. There's a, I don't know if you've if you've encountered this work or not, but there's a, a gentleman I know, uh, Matthew Cortman. He wrote a book called "Saying No to God," and he kind of experienced like it's it's kind of like an edgy title and stuff like that, but he kind of ex um, wrestles with like uh, those texts where there are people who are, yeah, saying no to God, they're, they're wrestling with God. Um, and, you know, he gives countless examples, uh, but I found that book to be very helpful. And Matthew's like a super, super nice guy. Um, I think he's currently at Yale Divinity School working on his PhD, if I remember correctly. Matthew, if you're listening to this, I apologize for not remembering. <laughs> uh, but that that was a, a helpful book to me that kind of opened up some of that, um, some of those things as well. Uh, yeah. Um, so one thing 
that I wanted to ask you about as well um, was you have a chapter on uh, the prophets in your book. And um, the prophets are interesting and, and people do all sorts of, of fun stuff with the prophets. Um, but I thought maybe what would be helpful is I want to kind of give my understanding of what a biblical prophet is and then have you comment on if you think that's fair or not and then ask you like, okay, but so if that's what the prophets are doing, then like what re relevance do they have for us today? Does that sound good? Sounds cool. good. All right. So how I would talk about the biblical prophets in my understanding is when we think of the prophets, what we shouldn't think about is um, like Wizard of Oz, fortune teller, like crystal ball kind of things. They're not like gazing into the crystal ball and somehow predicting the future. But rather, biblical prophets are uh, people who had some kind of radical encounter with um, Yahweh, and now are serving as a messenger or like a mouthpiece um, to a specific group of people at a specific time um, to kind of share the message of God. And they, most of the time, the prophets seem like they're trying to remind Israel, like, hey, guys, remember this like covenant promise thing that you made with God? Well, you're kind of not doing great at that right now. And also, uh, maybe you should repent of that because you're breaking the rules. Here's how you did it. Maybe you should repent. And if you don't, here's probably what's going to happen. The Assyrians, they're going to come in here. They're going to beat you up and it's not going to be good. Um, and then the prophets were kind of like, written off a lot of the time, right? They were kind of like marginal voices. Um, but so they were speaking, mostly my point is they're speaking to a specific group of people at a specific time with a word from God that was less about like, let me predict these future events. And, but rather like you guys are breaking the covenant and some things are going to happen. If you don't repent, you should maybe repent. Is that like a fair understanding? Yeah, I think that'd be that'd be pretty much how I'd describe it too. So, like you say, they're not really predicting typically like far off future events. I mean, to be sure, we could talk about like some specific texts that do find some fulfillment in the far off distant future. But generally, they are they are talking about the the future of the people that they're speaking directly to, um, and they are they're basically saying, you know, here are God's intentions towards you given what you're doing. If you keep going down this road, here's what's going to happen. And now there's always a possibility, at least you know, from the way Jeremiah talks about that if they people change their ways and God's mind may change. Um, so that's always an option. That's, that's seen as an option, but, but you're right. It's just pretty much, it's really relevant to the people to whom they're, they're speaking. I would agree with that. So with that in mind, then if we were to read the prophets today, right? Cause there's a, a good bit of the Old Testament that is, you know, made up of the, the major and the minor prophets. If that's what they're doing, then why should we read and listen to the prophets today if they're not, you know, telling us who to vote for in the next election or who the Antichrist is or something like that? And I'm, yeah. obviously I'm saying these things very tongue in cheek, but maybe it doesn't feel quite as, uh, as spectacular or scintillating without that aspect. But I still, again, think there's so much relevance in the prophets. So I think of like, um, say like a prophet like Amos, 
You know, so he's indicting the people for their failure to do justice. You know, and he's speaking to people in a time of economic prosperity, uh, when people are going through all the religious rituals, but he's arguing, look, you, know, you can do all the religious rituals you want. You can make as many sacrifices as you like. You, know, you put our language, you can sing praise choruses till you're blue in the face. But if you're not doing justice, you know, if you're not setting things right, you're kind of missing the whole point. I think that's a message that's relevant for us to just as much today as it was for, for Amos's community. Or I think of another example, like um, what sometimes is called Second Isaiah, so the part of Isaiah from chapters 40 through 55, people believe that prophet was speaking to folks living in Babylonian exile. And um, you know, once you go into exile, it's kind of over. You don't have any expectation of going back home. They're like a thousand miles from home. Uh, this is and this is you know on foot. They're not going to get on a plane and fly back. So you kind of think it's over. And here this prophet comes and and gives them hope that, that God's going to do a new thing. That God is the future for them. That God's not given up for them, given up on them. And so again, I think that message of hope is also good for us to hear when we experience a variety of hardships, low points, you know, that God doesn't give up on us. God doesn't abandon us. Um, God can do a new thing in our lives. So I just find there, there are still many points of, of relevance. I think it's good to first ask, you know, what, what's the prophet saying into this particular context? And then how might that, you know, translate into our own um, context today? Yeah. So like maybe like a practical example, maybe it wouldn't be the best idea to pull something like, and I'm going to go for, you know, a super cliche here, but it wouldn't be super helpful to grab something like Jeremiah 29, 11, right? You probably do that to where I was going and say, um, okay, great. You know, I, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, you know, plans, you know, to prosper you, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it might not be great to like take that and then just apply it willy nilly, but also at the same time, it wouldn't be fair to say that that statement isn't true, right? Like we can find truth in this statement in Jeremiah 29, 11, even if it wasn't written necessarily to Josh and Eric in 2021 on December 1st <laughs> or whatever it is. Um, but there's still, there's still a, a bit of truth within that, that passage. Does, does that make sense? I think that's right on. So again, like I would say like that particular story, it's a, it's in a letter written to people and again, in Babylonian exile. And what God is saying is, the plan I have for you is to bring you back home. Like, that's what I'm going to do. So that would be a, a good word for them. I think some people take that verse to then somehow mean that God has our entire life planned out from beginning to end. I think that's that's much saying something much broader than that text is, will, is, is able to bear. But I do think, again, it's a passage that speaks of God's care for us, that God's good intentions toward us, that, again, God... Um, wants to see us flourish and, you know, has, has sort of good, good in mind um, as we, as we live our lives, even if we may be in a, a really difficult spot. So I do think those kinds of truths or messages can still come out of that, out of that passage, as long as we don't try to extend it and push it too, too hard in specific kinds of ways. Yeah, sweet. I, I think that's, um, that's helpful advice too, because I, just like from personal experience, I remember there was a stage um, in my my life where I was like, you know, found out stuff about like Jeremiah 29, 11 was like dog, like just as dogmatic as like, you know, somebody, you know, that would push that on me and be like, no, this is not about this and you can't use it and da, 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 da. Um, and so rather it was helpful to kind of like let that pendulum swing from one extreme to another, but then 
kind of come back and realize like, okay, relax. Like, let's actually look at this and see like, no, there's still something here. We can still learn from this. It doesn't have to be this um, all or nothing kind of game. And that, that was really helpful uh, for myself as well. Um, yeah. So cool. Let me see. I, I want to ask you two more things. Are we good time-wise? I want to be fair to. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm doing fine. Thanks. Okay, cool. Yeah. I just want to make sure, because I know I can talk forever and keep going. Um, but I wanted to, so I'll kind of listeners, I'll give you a map here. And also this will be helpful for, um, for Eric. I want to ask about morally, like the morally troubling text and maybe touch a little bit on the divine violence stuff. And then I kind of want to ask about like, um, I mean, you do this in your book, but I want to share an example of like a way that I have found helpful engaging the text that looks different than um, what I grew up being taught. And then ask if like, there's any other ways that you might encourage uh, listeners who have a hard time engaging um, the Old Testament text, like, hey, maybe try something like this. Sure. Cool. So we'll start then with the the morally troubling stuff, because I think um, it's once you pick up the Old Testament or the Bible in general and start actually reading it, you realize very quickly that there is a lot of violence. There's a lot of sex. <laughs> there's a lot of stuff um, that maybe if like the, you know, rating committee or whatever they're called that does movies, if they got their hands on the Bible, they might make it rated R or maybe even, you know, some parts rated X, like this is, we can't show this on a screen kind of stuff. Um, and then, so that's, that's problematic, right? Cause those things all go against all this stuff that I was taught growing up, but then also we run into this problem where um, we have what we're told is this, you know, perfect representation of who God is and the, the incarnation, the person of Jesus and Jesus at times seems to stand at odds with, or looks very different than the God um, that seems to be presented in the old Testament. And that causes a lot of strife and concern for people. Um, and I know that's kind of like an area of your work that um, you've done many, many uh, things with, but I just wanted to touch on that briefly uh, just to get some thoughts out there. Yeah, I mean, I do think again these 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 morally troubling passages are are they are a huge obstacle. Um, sometimes, as you know, mentioned before, the text actually condemns the acts, so those are not as difficult to deal with. Um, but still, you want to be careful. I, I always find it interesting, you know, the the church uh, that I attend when people graduate from first grade, you know, big graduation there, um, they're given a Bible. And I'm thinking, man, for a first grader, there's some there's some rough stuff in here, um, you know, for a first grader to handle. So even if it's condemned in the text, it's still not. There are some stories I would not want to read to a first grader. I mean, they're just not that appropriate. So I do think that's a that's an issue. Um, I think, again, it's it's really for me important to think about, like, what are my interpretive lenses through which I'm going to read these texts? Like what? what are my guardrails that are gonna keep me on track here when I get to some of these things? And I think, again, for me, like I say, what's most important is love of God and love of others. You know, So I wanna, does this text lead me to love God and love others? Or does my interpretation of this text lead me in that direction? If not, then maybe I need to look at it from a different perspective. Maybe I need to focus more on the victims of the violence like we talked about before, rather than the actual act of violence itself. 
or you know, does this text do justice? Does it set things right? So you know, maybe this is a text about about rape or about sexual assault. That's that's hard stuff to talk about, but maybe that's the very text I need to use if I'm a pastor of a church to talk about sex because it's happening and people need to find ways to talk about it, or about domestic violence. Um, or again, you know, look at another morally troubling text, you know, what is this text suggesting about this person? Is it dehumanizing them? Is it, is it suggesting that they're expendable? And then again, I remember, hey, we're all created in God's image. And what does that, what does that mean in terms of how I view, treat, view people, how I treat people um, in the real world? So I think there are ways like that that can be helpful in even making our way through some of those most some of the most difficult texts. And, and I always say too, you know, if you're if you're bumping up against a lot of those texts in the Old Testament, take a break. I mean, go somewhere different in the Old Testament and and you know leave them behind for a while. You know, sometimes when I, I teach a class, I've taught some classes where I've you know, well like in a row to kind of deal with divine violence. And sometimes I feel like I need to start by saying, you know, I love I love Jesus, I love my Bible, you know, I love love the church, uh, but we're gonna deal with some real tough stuff here. But that's not all there is. I mean, there it's there. And I'm very aware of it. Like I said, I've written some books on it. And there are other parts as well. So if you find yourself really getting stuck there, you try some of those suggestions. But if that's not working, just take a break. Go to some other passages in scripture um, that you find, you know, less troublesome. And then, you know, come back again, maybe at a later time. Read some folks who've written on these things. There's all sorts of different approaches people take to dealing with these morally troubling passages. Um, and that, and you, may, you may be ready, more ready to re-engage it at another point. Sorry, that was a long answer to your question. No, that's good. That's a really, it's really helpful. Um, and like, I know for me, the thing that kind of allowed me to start to at least look at these passages a bit differently um, was learning or to take on a um, like Jesus-centered hermeneutic or perspective um, where, you know, I take the Hebrews, you know, the Hebrew author at his word um, or her word when they say, you know, Jesus, is the ultimate revelation of who God is. If you want to know what, you know, Jesus or what God looks like, look at the person of Jesus. Um, and then I, you know, take some of the other New Testament language as well that kind of helps support that and then read back through the Bible through that lens, almost like um, those movies where you watch it and then you get to the very end of the movie and then something happens and that event then changes the whole meaning of the rest of the movie. So like the sixth sense works that way. The usual suspects works that way. Um, and so like Jesus, I feel like Jesus is maybe something like that. Um, where like Jesus is this, uh, like the, the twist, so to speak in this metaphor at the end of the movie that now we can go back and read differently. And so that helped me because then I was like able to look at it and say, okay, maybe this perspective of God um, isn't uh, fully accurate. Maybe this is more so reflecting the authors and their understanding of God at the time. They didn't have access, you know, to the ultimate revelation of God or something like that. And so Jesus becomes like the, the tool. Um, or another one I found helpful was um, his name is escaping me currently, but uh, he's a, a bishop within like the Orthodox um, church tradition. And he has a book called uh, something like the mirror of scripture. The Old Testament is about you or something like that. Basically, he argues, 
what is it? Hold on, I have it right here. Let me grab it off the shelf. Um, where'd it go? It's supposed to be right here. Well, it used to be right here. All my books got mixed up recently. It used to be right there, but my wife color-coded all of my books. I don't know if you can see, it looks very nice. And that, now I don't know where they are. But that book was really helpful too, because it, it kind of made the point that like when we read the Old Testament and we see some of these violent things, like perhaps the Old Testament is like holding up a mirror to ourselves and, and showing us a reflection of less about who God is and more about like some of the propensities that we have as humans to do these violent things or something like that. So I don't know if, if either of those, if you think either of those are helpful or are familiar with those approaches. Right. No, I think they're both, I think they're both useful. Um, I mean, I think for the second one, I know Tom Stark has sort of talked a little bit about that too. We can kind of see like in these texts sort of a mirror that kind of reflects, I think can reflect back or can at least shows us, it shows us, we kind of learn by negative example. And there's something, there's something valuable in that. Um, I do think your first point about Jesus, I'm all in there. I mean, I, in my book, Disturbing Divine Behavior, that's sort of my, my centerpiece hermeneutic that I talk about a Christocentric hermeneutic. So I do think reading through the lens of Jesus, that Jesus becomes our litmus test, our, our measuring rod, as it were, by which all portrayals of God in the Bible are evaluated. So I'm very comfortable saying many of these portrayals in the Old Testament reflect the cultural and historical context out of which they emerge. They make sense in that time and space. Um, you know, had I lived back then, I probably would have thought of God in similar ways. Um, but that doesn't mean that's what God's actually like. It may just mean that's what Israel thought God was like. And so we need to look at Jesus, who is the fullest and clearest revelation of God, and see, do, do these portrayals measure up to that? Do they correspond to that? And if they don't, then I think we're free to critique them and say, you know, these are cultural, historical, Israelite understandings of God, but they don't reflect God's true nature and character. And I still would say there's things in those texts that are useful, but I think we need to be upfront about that and say, this portrayal of God doesn't really show me what God is, is actually like. And there are other places where it does correspond, and we do see the attributes of God that are reflected in the God Jesus reveals in Old Testament passages also. So it kind of it can work both ways. But I do think Jesus is a key um, interpretive um, uh, a way to, to read these these texts. Yeah, that that was kind of like the the interpretive key that kind of uh, reinvigorated me, I guess. Or or once I kind of um, encountered that perspective, it it um, at least from like a at first a starting point from a um, psychological perspective or from like a, a intellectual perspective, it allowed me to engage the text in a way I was like, okay, cool. Like, awesome. But then um, after I was, you know, given that, um, I don't know, permission or something like that <laughs> uh, to engage the text in that way, uh, intellectually, it also um, not to sound too woo woo, but it also did something uh, to me here heart wise, where I can engage the text uh, from my heart in a different way, um, where I could now see and experience this God uh, who does look like Jesus, uh, this God who is love, you know, um, that isn't going to, you know, beat me up or something like that. Um, and that was really, really helpful. That was like a huge turning point um, for myself, you know, specifically. So. And that makes sense because you see a God who 
pursues you in love, not one who is smiting, slaying, and slaughtering. I mean, it's just a very different way to think about God. And I think Jesus, I mean, I think that's the way Jesus uses the Old Testament is very selectively in terms of what images are brought forward. Um, so we, we see, again, a clear, fuller picture of, uh, you know, a God of love, a God who doesn't, uh, you know, punish people through natural disasters or, you know, certain kinds of diseases. That's not the way God operates. Um, so it's, a, again, a, a different a different picture from some of those violent texts and a picture that's consistent with some other pictures of God's compassion and grace in the Old Testament. Yeah, and there's even, I forget exactly where it is, but I know there's, there's an example too, right, where Jesus like quotes the Old Testament and pulls something forward. And then like he specifically stops at a point where like the next verse is like this, you know, retributive, violent kind of image of God. And Jesus like reads it all the way up into that and just says, oh, that's the end of the story. <laughs> I don't need the rest of this passage. No, that's, that's your right. So in Luke chapter four, when he's in the synagogue at Nazareth, and he's reading from the scroll of Isaiah. He, he stops before what I think C.S. Coles calls the prophetic punchline, right, which would be the day of the Lord, which they would all have been eager to hear because this is when God supposedly is going to break into time and space and punish Israel's enemies. And Jesus stops right before that. And then, then he actually goes on to, to actually talk about a couple Old Testament stories where God is being kind to outsiders, which almost gets Jesus killed then, you know, because they're they're messing with their their view of God and how they're envisioning. Jesus has a much more inclusive, much bigger God than than they had envisioned, and that that doesn't sit, sit well with them. Yeah, that that's interesting because just last night uh, we talked about genealogies at uh, Tuesday school, which is that thing I told you my friend Jace does. And um, he was like, everyone thinks genealogies are boring, right? And then he tried to make a case that like, you know, well, maybe they're they're cooler than we thought. And um, he took, I think, if I remember correctly, it was the genealogy from Matthew, um, trying to link, you know, Jesus and such. And um, he took it apart and he like walked through like each person and was like, do you rem not remember who this is? It was like, of course you don't. But like, here's who this person is. <laughs> and it's like all these, like all the worst kind of people that would definitely not be talked about in like somebody's like kingly or even priestly, you know, genealogy line. They're like, well, Jesus comes from this terrible person and this one and this one, like all the outsiders, everybody who the, the readers at the time would have known and been like, those people are out like, whoa, that's where Jesus came from. So like Matthew's trying to make this a specific theological point. And then Jace like traced it into the Old Testament as well and said like, well, like also look, here's all these stories in the Old Testament uh, that's doing the same thing, you know? Um, so I think that's really cool. Yeah. It's like a theme that kind of pervades uh, if you have eyes to see, so to speak. I think that's great. If you can make a genealogy come alive, that's that's good. And, in Math and Matthew's I think would, would be an easier one than some of the ones in the Old Testament. But even there, I mean, there, it's interesting to see who's connected to whom. What are the, how do those genealogies function? What are they there for? And they connect people to certain, you know, priestly lines and all that is, you know, just have significant, but significance, yeah. Cool. Well, I guess um, one last thing, just like on a super practical level um, for people who are like, okay, you know what? Maybe I, I think I do want to give the Old Testament a chance again. I want to try to enjoy the Old Testament. <laughs> I want to take Eric at his word and, and give this a shot. Um, for me, a, a, a practice, and you mentioned this in your book, and I was excited about that, that was super helpful for me was Lectio Divina. 
um, it was a way of engaging scripture that allowed me to come to it uh, without, how do, I'm trying to think how to say this. Um, typically part, one of the reasons I have a hard time engaging scripture is because I just pick it all apart, like intellectually. Um, and Lectio Divina allowed me to actually step out of that space and engage scripture in a way that was, uh, you know, more prayerful um, and wasn't trying to approach it as like a textbook or something like that, but it was like a different approach altogether. And, and that for me still to this day is the way that I can best engage scripture. When I read the Bible, that's the way I do it because currently at this stage in my, my life, that's, that's what works for me. Um, so like, are there, are there any other, um, ways that maybe you would encourage people to maybe try to engage with these texts if it's not just like a straight up sit down and do your 10 minute you know devotion in the morning before you go to work kind of thing yeah so that's that's a great question so there are a couple chapters sort of toward the end of the book where i give a just a variety of different kinds of suggestions i mean for some people it might be if you're like an artsy kind of person i mean try creating a work of art, you know, paint something, sculpt something, draw something related to an Old Testament text or story that's meaningful for you. So you can kind of encounter the text in a different way. Um, or for others, it might be journaling so that you're, you're reading something, but then writing and reflecting on it rather than just simply reading it. Um, or again, you know, I suggest something as simple as like listening to the Old Testament, you know, audibly, um, you know, someone else who's reading it. There's just, if you can encounter it in a different kind of way, maybe than you normally do it, those things can be really helpful. And I guess I, I would just to encourage you know encourage you to to think about making some kind of a plan. It doesn't have to be like a five year plan. It can be like a, here's my one week plan, or it can even be here's what I'm going to do with it tomorrow. But to have some kind of a plan of what you're going to do with the Old Testament. You know, maybe it will be like this week. I'm just going to read one chapter. I'm going to read that same chapter every day this week, and I'm going to just sort of see what new insights emerge. And if that goes well, maybe I'll try it again next week. And if it doesn't go well, I'll try something different. Maybe I'll draw something this next week or maybe the next week i'll try to do like a a book survey i have a chapter that talks about how you, how you can sort of survey a book maybe that will be interesting or or then again maybe you know you'll um try to do something more imaginative and read a story and kind of imagine yourself in the story like who would you be if you were in the story or how would you be engaging with the characters in the story you might find that a useful way to engage a text so i would just really encourage you to try a variety of different approaches um you know variety is the spice of life um, sometimes we we do the same thing with the Bible over and over and over again, and we wonder why we're bored with it. Well, it might be because we need to just try something different. So again, the book gives lots of different suggestions, and I just encourage you to mix them up, come up with a plan. Um, you'll find that more satisfying than just sort of jumping all over the place. And you try your plan for a week, and that works great. Maybe do it again if it doesn't. Try something else um, and, and see how that works for you. But there's lots of great stuff in there to be to be had. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. And I, I think, to listeners, just... I know that there's a lot of uh, material out there, a lot of um, people out there who would just tell you like, oh, like you're, you have to read the Old Testament because you're a Christian and blah, blah, blah. And they're just willing to kind of disregard, um, you know, your, your walk in life or maybe different traumas and things like that, that you've experienced. Um, but what I want to give you the good news is, is Eric's book is not like that. Um, <laughs> I think, um, I think, uh, Eric gives like, seriously, um, it gives a very, 
enjoyable way to approach the old testament that is that is compelling and and can help uh bring this text to life even um if you have experienced you know um trauma or or things like that at the hands of people weaponizing scripture or something like that and so i really want to encourage you to to check it out um again enjoying the old testament uh, a creative guide to it uh encountering scripture um, and at the very least, like the cover is super cool. So like, maybe you can just like have it as like a nice thing to look at. And then one day you'll be like, okay, now I'm going to read it. Uh, <laughs> but no, Eric, thank you seriously um, for writing this work. I think it's going to be helpful to a lot of people. It's been helpful to myself. Um, I've enjoyed it. Um, I keep using the word enjoy. I think enjoying <laughs> is kind of a suggestive here. Um, but yeah, thank, thank you for, for, for putting it out there. I mean, I, I genuinely think it's a resource that is, that is helpful and doesn't just give like the same common trope of like, well, you're a Christian. So you have to read the old Testament, like suck it up, buttercup kind of thing. Um, and I appreciate that. So, so thank you for creating that resource for people like myself and, and the listeners. Thanks. For, thanks for making space to have me on and, and for uh, talking about the book. I, I do hope it helps people get back, get into the old Testament or get back into the old Testament. That would be great. Yeah, for sure. I think this, I mean, this is super fun and um, I have a million questions I would love to pick your brain about <laughs> the Old Testament sometimes. So uh, perhaps in the future um, we can hang out again and uh, have some fun conversations about the Old Testament. And I'll, I'll make sure that uh, all my questions are vetted so I don't get you in trouble, right? <laughs> I'd, be, I'd be glad to come back. Always glad to be here. <laughs> awesome. Well, listeners, thank you so much uh, for hanging out today. Again, uh, do yourself a favor and go pick up a copy of Eric's book. Again, it's it's Eric. It's written under the uh, Eric A. Seibert. That's S-E-I-B-E-R-T. Enjoying the Old Testament, a, a creative guide to encountering scripture. I'll link it in the show notes. That way people can find it super easy. Uh, but if people are interested in connecting with uh, with you and, and maybe engaging some of your other work, where would you like them to go uh, to do that? Yeah, that's a good question. Unfortunately, my social media presence is not very present, so that's something that I hope, <laughs> I hope to work on in the, in the in the months to come. But probably the easiest way, if people just want to send me an email, is just e s e i b e r t at messiah.edu, and I'm really glad to correspond by email that way. That'd be that'd be fine. I'm gonna make a note to add your email to the show notes. Thanks. Boom. There we go. Cool. Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much for your time today, Eric. Listeners, thank you for uh, for hanging out. And hopefully we can go from here and try to enjoy the New Testament a little bit, or the Old Testament rather, uh, a little bit more than we did prior to the conversation. So thank you. Thanks. Great. Peace and love, guys.